Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Curious Canadian History. I'm your host... David Boris. While the border between Canada and the United States is regularly patrolled and controlled heavily on both sides, for many decades, it was far more nebulous. It was a border that cut across territory where families and entire peoples had once moved freely. Yet, by the 1860s, the border into British North America from the United States was a safe haven for escaped slaves, but also for those fleeing the long arm of American military might. When the Dakota, starving and angry, rose up in 1862 against the United States government and settlers in Minnesota, a six-week conflict resulted. In the aftermath, many Dakota fled north across the border to seek safety, refuge, and shelter. These American Indians, as the British and later Canadian governments referred to them, would struggle to find a home in what would become Canada, and for many years would remain wandering refugees with uncertain status in a land not quite sure how to accept them. This is Season 7, Episode 21, The Dakota War and British North America. Today's book recommendation is titled A Line of Blood and Dirt, Creating the Canada-United States Border Across Indigenous Lands. The author for this work is Benjamin Hoy, and the book was published by Oxford University Press in 2021. This book examines the creation and enforcement of the border between Canada and the United States from 1775 until 1939. Built with indigenous labor and on top of indigenous land, the border was born in conflict. Utilizing historical GIS, this book showcases how regional conflicts, political reorganization, and social upheaval created the Canada-U.S. border and remade the communities who lived in its shadows. 
As well, folks, I just want to remind you all that this is the last episode of Season 7, and Season 8 is going to return in September. So before we get into any serious understanding of the events of the 1860s, it's important to identify who the Dakota are. The Dakota are one of three main subcultures of the Sioux, and are generally divided into two groups, the Western Dakota and Eastern Dakota. The Western Dakota reside primarily in the upper Missouri area. The Eastern Dakota, whom are the focus of this episode today, reside primarily in the eastern regions of North and South Dakota, Central Minnesota, and parts of Northern Iowa. The Eastern Dakota themselves are divided into four main bands. The Mittawakanton, the Sisseton, the Wapakute, and the Wapaton. Prior to the 17th century, most of the eastern Dakota resided in a large area on the shores of Lake Superior, modern-day Ontario, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. But a series of wars with the Ojibwe, who were armed with European muskets through their trade with the French and British, resulted in the eastern Dakota migrating west and southward into the Dakota-Minnesota area, which was recognized as their territory by the late 18th century. Now, over the course of the 19th century, a series of treaties were signed between the Dakota and the U.S. government expanding westward. The first was in 1805, known as the Treaty of St. Peter's, and this was negotiated between two Dakota chiefs and U.S. military officer and explorer Zebulon Pike. Other treaties followed. 1825, 1837, 1851, and 1858. By 1858, the year Minnesota was incorporated as a state into the United States, Dakota land had been radically reduced, and most Dakota bands now lived on only small portions of what was once a massive territory. While some bands may have been resigned to the growing power of the U.S. government, and the seemingly unstoppable waves of settlers, others were not willing to accept this, and many Dakota were angry with the current state of affairs on their traditional territory. Most of the treaties signed with the U.S. had come with American promises of food, medicine, and support. But like so many treaties signed with indigenous groups, much of those promises went unfulfilled. By the start of the American Civil War in 1861, Abraham Lincoln's government in Washington was focused on defeating the breakaway states that made up the Confederacy and any resources and energy that could have been directed to fulfilling their treaty agreements with the Dakota were instead shifted to what would become a calamitous military conflict. This frustration felt by the Dakota was compounded by the fact that by 1862, many people were starving. Food resources in traditional Dakota territory were becoming scarce, primarily due to overhunting from settler groups. And more and more Dakota were growing angry with the U.S. government that ignored them, and settlers that seemed to never stop arriving. Further adding to this was the fact that local government stores did in fact have food and supplies, 
but government agents refused to dispense those supplies, hoarding them or at least directing them eastwards to more active theaters of war. At the same time, merchant traders dramatically increased their prices, and some just simply refused to continue trading with the Dakota. One of the most notorious examples was the stores at the Lower Sioux Agency, located south of the Minnesota River, about nine miles east of Redwood Falls, Minnesota. It was here that local merchant Andrew Myrick refused to sell any more of his food or supplies on credit. Some have claimed Myrick responded to Dakota pleas for food by saying, let them eat grass, though this is disputed. Regardless, with Dakota territory overhunted and government supplies being redirected to the war effort in the east and government annuities to the Dakota being suspended due to the conflict, the Dakota had little food and little money to purchase food. When local merchants refused to stop selling their wares on credit, there was little the Dakota could do. Tension was rife, and it would boil over in August of 1862. Before we get into the details of 1862, however, we need to first understand the border that existed between the U.S. and what was then British North America. While diplomats and politicians had drawn a border, and agreements like the Oregon Treaty of 1846 and others had helped to define it, the border itself was still a fairly ambiguous idea for those that lived in its shadow. It was not the patrolled and protected border we all recognize today. For groups like the Dakota, the Métis, Cree, Ojibwe, Blackfoot, and so many others, the official border cut right through many traditional territories and hunting grounds, and most groups had long histories of traveling throughout the areas that were now divided by this official border. For many newcomers into Dakota Territory, the border was a political reality, of course, and for most Dakota it was recognized, certainly, but it was also quite nebulous. Yet, when violence erupted in Minnesota, the border was also seen by many Dakota as a place of safety. By crossing it, the Dakota could escape from the depredations of the American military. The Civil War itself had also highlighted how nebulous the border really was. Despite Britain taking an officially neutral stance, many British North Americans crossed the border to enlist. This was despite colonial laws banning the enlistment of British subjects in the war. As well, colonial laws banned British merchants from supplying either side with weapons, ammunition, or coal. Yet, Many merchants across British North America engaged in extensive trade with American buyers in both banned substances and other supplies, such as food and medicine. The key for Britain in maintaining its neutrality was controlling movement across its border, yet this posed serious problems at times. Confederate smugglers used British North American waters to move goods, Confederate operatives covertly used British North American territory as a safe haven, even though the British and Canadian officials tried desperately to stop this. In 1864, a Confederate raiding party even descended on St. Albans in Canada East, modern-day Quebec, robbing three banks and killing a person. 
a Union patrol then crossed the border to engage them. This was clearly problematic for a British government and Canadian colonial government that placed great importance on being able to patrol and protect their own borders, a serious issue of sovereignty. As well, an estimated 15,000 American deserters left their posts and crossed the border into British North America, while some British soldiers even deserted their posts to enlist south of the border. In a few cases, American military patrols hunting deserters actually crossed into British North American territory. One deserter, Ebenezer Tyler, was actually caught and then returned to the United States. However, pressure from the British government forced his release and returned to Canada West. Finally, as the Union Army became more and more desperate for recruits, recruiting agents, known as crimpers, began to cross the border into British North America to find men, something very much in violation of Britain's neutrality and the laws of both nations. What this all means is that the U.S. Civil War exposed the very real limitations of border control that existed for both British North America and the United States in the 1860s. And what had already been a fairly nebulous border became even more so in the tense days of 1862 and would play an important role in the aftermath of the Dakota War. Curious Canadian history. We'll be back after the break. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. As mentioned previously, by the early 1860s, things in Dakota Territory were becoming tense. The government had redirected potential Dakota supplies, food, medicine, resources, etc. to the war effort, and effectively ignored their own treaty obligations to the Dakota. Meanwhile, settlers continued to arrive in the area, straining local resources further, particularly game that was overhunted already in much of the region. Finally, government agents living in or near Dakota Territory were unwilling to open up their reserves for the people, and local merchants had effectively ended allowing purchases of supplies on credit. The Dakota were starving, and it seemed like everyone else was willing to let them starve. Violence erupted in August when four Dakota men crossed a farmer's field returning from a hunting trip. Now, some sources say they attempted to steal eggs. Others say this was a fabrication. Either way, an argument erupted between the four men and the farmer, and violence ensued. The farmer struck one of the men with a broom, who in turn shot and killed the man, and then killed the rest of his family. When news of this killing reached Dakota camps, a very real split existed amongst the Dakota leadership. Some called for peace, saying a war would only further hurt the Dakota. 
Others called for war. One of the key voices in the pro-war camp was the Mittawakantan chief, Little Crow. Little Crow was one of the key figures in the entire Dakota War. Years earlier, Little Crow had been a signatory on a treaty giving up land to the U.S. government, and the reaction amongst his people was highly negative, and Little Crow actually lost his role as a tribal spokesman because of it. In the aftermath of this political defeat, because of what was seen as a diplomatic failure, Little Crow sought to change his ways and be much less accommodating towards the U.S. government. While Little Crow was at first reticent to go to war, eventually he agreed. It is important to point out here, however, that at the same time many Dakota did not support Little Crow or the decision to go to war. Led by Little Crow, the Dakota launched a series of attacks throughout southwestern Minnesota, killing hundreds of settlers. One of those included the merchant, Andrew Myrick, who was actually married to a Dakota woman. And, as the story goes, when Myrick's body was discovered, his mouth had been stuffed with grass. Along with killing settlers, the belligerent Dakota also took several hundred prisoners. Now, because of the ongoing civil war, the American government in Washington was slow to send the military out. Instead, at first, local militia units were relied upon. On August 18th, Little Crow's war party repelled this militia near Morton, Minnesota. Raids continued over the next several weeks against key locations such as New Ulm and Fort Ridgely. Now, the man chosen to stop the Dakota was Colonel Henry H. Sibley, who was put at the head of a hastily organized unit made up of volunteer militia and regular soldiers numbering roughly 1,400 men. Interestingly, Sibley was very connected to not only Minnesota, but the Dakota themselves. He had traded with Dakota for nearly 25 years, spoke the language, knew many of them personally, had been adopted into a Dakota band, had a child from a Dakota woman, and had even hunted with Little Crow in the past. Regardless of these connections, Sibley was going to pursue his task with the utmost vigor. Throughout the rest of August and into September, raids and skirmishes erupted throughout the region. Victories and defeats were experienced by both sides. Despite Dakota diplomatic efforts, they were unable to get any serious support from other Dakota groups. And while at times Dakota war parties counted as many as 600 warriors, generally speaking, most Dakota refused to rise up. In later September, Sibley's force encountered a war party of Dakota preparing to launch a surprise attack and battle erupted. The Dakota were soundly defeated. This Battle of Wood Lake, fought on the 23rd of September, was the last conflict of the Dakota War. In almost six weeks of fighting, approximately 500 people were killed on all sides, the largest number of these being settlers. In the aftermath of the war, the U.S. government arrested and tried nearly 400 Dakota, 303 of whom were sentenced to death, and now, while most of these were commuted by President Lincoln, 
38 were still hanged in December 1862 in what remains the largest mass execution in American history. For many, the aftermath of the Dakota War also highlighted the deep connections between British North America and the people living south of the border. Because hundreds of Dakota fled northwards towards British North America in the aftermath. As U.S. authorities were still hunting Dakota, and the U.S. military and settlers were reported to be carrying out revenge killings of any Dakota they encountered, many of them traveled slowly, carefully, and only by night. Cavalry, led by Generals Alfred Sully and Henry Sibley, ambushed and attacked several Dakota refugee groups, killing hundreds in the process. Settlers shot Dakota on sight. This was the fate of Little Crow himself, who had successfully fled north, but returned to Minnesota in July 1863, where he was shot and killed by a farmer. Despite the ongoing hunt, hundreds of Dakota made it across the northern border. Because of the lack of border guards, many only realized they had arrived in British North America when they spotted merchants and travelers flying the Union Jack or the Hudson's Bay Company flag. Many arrived in the Red River Settlement in what is now modern-day Winnipeg, Manitoba. They were short on supplies and immediately sought to establish relations with both British representatives and the Métis who dominated the region. In dealing with the British, Dakota leaders spoke of the historical alliance between the British and the Sioux, who had aided the British during the War of 1812. By 1863, nearly 600 Dakota had arrived in the Red River Settlement. Unquestionably, this put strain on the resources of the Red River area. Because the Dakota were poor and lacked supplies and food, there was fear from both the Métis and British that this could lead to raiding and thus conflict. On the other hand, the presence of so many refugees also increased tension between the United States and Britain, as some officials in the U.S. felt the British were harboring enemies of the United States. A U.S. major, A.C. Hatch, had even written the Hudson's Bay Company governor of Red River, Alexander Dallas, and offered the use of his cavalry to help remove the Dakota. Dallas said no at first, but in the early spring of 1864, actually sought to take Hatch up on his offer. By then, however, Hatch could no longer carry out such an operation because the previous winter had killed most of his horses. It goes without saying the political, diplomatic, and historic ramifications of an American military force entering British territory to remove Dakota refugees would have been profound. For Dakota refugees that fled northwards beyond the Red River, their place on British soil also remained precarious. Conflict over resources resulted in tension and even some scattered violence between Dakota and other prominent Plains nations such as the Ojibwe and Cree. Many ended up traveling further west and further north. A large group, for instance, settled in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. Another in what would become Sioux Valley, Manitoba. Even during this time, American officials pressured the British government to either refuse or at least limit their help to the Dakota, 
and clandestine agents were even sent into British North America to capture key Dakota warriors and return them to American soil. Two chiefs in particular, Little Six and Medicine Bottle, were victims of this. They were drugged, kidnapped, and handed over to American authorities, convicted of murder, and hanged in November of 1865. Of course, not all Dakota fled northwards. Many did pack up and move closer to the border in case fleeing became necessary. As well, a number who fled north eventually returned to the U.S., though most always stayed quite close to the international border as a sort of quick escape route. In the early 1870s, the government of the newly created Dominion of Canada sought to solve the Dakota problem by offering hundreds of them a permanent reserve. This certainly made sense to the government, who could increase their control over the group, relieve tension between them and increasing numbers of settlers, while also paving the way for intended assimilation. When the Canadian government made this offer, they made it clear, however, that they were not offering this to Dakota still in the U.S., only to those who resided in Canada. But it's interesting to note that while the Dakota were offered a reservation, they were not promised any of the annuities promised to other First Nations who had signed treaties with the British and or Canadian government. In essence, the Dakota were still seen as American refugees, or, as the Indian agent at the time put it, American Indians, not British. Even as late as 1911, the Dakota's American origins continually popped up in government missives and reports. Today, there are nine Dakota bands in Canada, four in Saskatchewan, and five in Manitoba. Perhaps no better quote could finish this episode than that from historian Benjamin Hoy, who wrote, and I quote, The ongoing references to the Dakota's American origins served two purposes. It allowed Canadian agents to compare their country favorably with the United States as a refuge from American aggression. It showed Canada's reluctance to allow wards of the U.S. to be integrated into Canada. Canada gave them land to diffuse a tense situation, but it did not see the Dakota as immigrants who could change their national allegiances through relocation or naturalization. Instead, the Dakota remained American Indians living permanently abroad. The Dakota carried the stigma of their American origin and unusual legal status as non-treaty Indians in possession of reserve well into the 20th century. Before we conclude today, I just wanted to thank everybody out there for all your support through this season. It was a wild one. We transitioned to a new name, a new broadcasting company with ACAST, brought on advertising and sponsorships, and even introduced a new format, blending narrative episodes with expert interviews. Through it all, our listeners have not only remained loyal, but our listenership has increased and I cannot thank you all enough. I wish you all the best of the 2022 summer, and I look forward to the return of Curious Canadian History, Season 8, starting in September. 
I want to thank you all for listening today. Don't forget, you can find me on Twitter at Doc Boris. That's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Patreon. And you can find us on all podcast listening devices. And please do not hesitate to write and leave a comment. We love to hear from you. I'm David Boris. Stay curious, friends. 